So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 11 to 24. The title of our message this morning is Grateful to be Included. Grateful to be Included is the title of the message this morning. And it's found, the text is found in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 24. And here is, I believe, the purpose for this passage. I believe God's heart for us, God's burden for us, if I could say this, God's goal for us this morning is that we would emerge from this text grateful to be included, that he included us in his people and his promises. The Apostle Paul originally wrote this letter in about 57 A.D., And he wrote it to a church in the city of Rome. A church that had about 25 years earlier been founded by Jewish believers. And it was predominantly a Jewish church at that time. But 25 some years later, it was now a predominantly Gentile church. Paul was writing, Paul, a Jewish believer, was writing to a predominantly Gentile church. And they were asking this question. Where are all the Jewish believers? Why does it appear, why is it so, that the majority of Israel has rejected Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah? And he was trying to answer that question. And he answered that question with two rhetorical questions. The first one we dealt with last week. Has God rejected his people? Listen to that message to help you get the context, the original context of this of this passage. And this morning, he's going to now ask a second question. We find that second question in verse 11, the first of of the many verses we're going to read. And that question is this. That question is this. Has Israel stumbled so as to fall? Has Israel stumbled? Have they rejected Christ as their Savior so as to fall, fall permanently? Is that it? Is God done with Israel? So the Gentiles are trying to understand why the Jews have not believed in Jesus as their Christ. And here is the crux of the matter. Here is the main fulcrum, the main point around which this passage moves. It is the sovereign, electing grace of God. Big words. It is God's will in salvation. It is how God chooses to execute his gracious plan of salvation, his mercy over mankind. That's really what the Gentiles don't quite understand. That is at the the basis of their questions. And so, what we want to do this morning is we want to take a look at that question. The question of God's electing grace God's salvation and God's sovereignty in salvation. Because the Gentiles at the writing of this letter some 2,000 years ago had forgotten or perhaps didn't properly understand God's electing grace. And because of that, they didn't understand what was happening with Israel. Because of that, they started thinking of themselves a little more highly than they should. Because of that, they actually, subtly, started writing off Israel. Started saying that, oh, well, God can never, can never choose these people again because of the horrible things they have done. 
Corey mentioned terrorists this morning. Corey mentioned terrorists that behead people. That's horrible. But if we don't understand God's electing grace, we may write off someone like that. And Paul was sure happy that God didn't write off someone like that. Because though Paul did not cut someone's head off, the end result of what Paul did and sanctioned still resulted in the death of many. And death is still death. Now granted, beheading is a particularly gruesome death. But a religious zealot killed people who believe in Jesus. And God did not write him off. And he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles and saying, be careful you don't write people off. And be careful you don't think more of yourself than you should because it's all about God's electing grace. That's a good word for us. Though we may not encounter any zealots that want to cut our head off in Miami. There still are a lot of people in Miami that drive through our neighborhoods that we may say, hmm, not him, not her. That happens when we forget God's electing grace. And then we start thinking ourselves a little bit better. We don't do that. Right. But all of us deserve God's wrath. Some of us get mercy. He chooses to whom he gives mercy. We don't. So that is the key of this passage. That we would emerge this morning grateful to be included. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, this text calls us to remember that we were included as God's people and made partakers of God's promises in Christ by your sovereign electing grace alone. No man is righteous before you. Every man, woman, and child deserves your wrath, your judgment, for we are all rebels. Romans teaches that. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. That you would would stir in us a gratitude that we've been included. Grateful to be included. And where we've forgotten it, remind us. Where we felt we're a little superior. Oh Lord, help us to repent. And Lord, if there's those here that would say, I haven't been included... I have no hope. I don't have any promises. Al, I'm here and I have nothing. Then Lord, would you this morning, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you have mercy, Lord? Would you open their eyes today? Would you unstop their ears today? Would you open their hard heart today? May this be the day of salvation for your elect who are sitting right here, perhaps. By your sovereign grace. Lord, I pray that. May I be faithful to preach your gospel. For it is through your gospel that you will do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us read now Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. Paul, in the second of his rhetorical questions, says the following. So I ask, did they, he's talking about Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means? means. Rather, 
Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, comma, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't write them off. If you are arrogant, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, so they're arguing with Paul now. It's a little diatribe. It's hypothetical Gentile arguing with Paul. Hey, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. God's electing grace here. Severity toward those who have fallen, they get justice. But God's kindness to you, we get mercy, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, speaking of Israel now, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Here's the key, folks. For God has the power to graft them in again. God is sovereign in salvation. Choosing whom he will. For if you were cut off from what is by nature an olive a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? The issue here is God's sovereignty in election. It's his electing grace. And we see that the Gentiles didn't quite understand it. They'd gotten a little bit fuzzy on this, based upon their question in verse 11a. Hey, has God, has God hardened the heart of Israel so much? Have they stumbled? Have they not believed in Jesus to such an extent that they have fallen forever? Is this fall permanent? Is it a permanent condition? Is Israel's unbelief something from which they will never recover? Was their fall final? Was God through with them forever? Had God moved on from Israel for good, would Israel's current rejection of Jesus Christ be their final act as they faded forever from the stage of redemptive history? You see, they'd forgotten God's electing grace. They had written Israel off when it comes to God's ability to include them into God's people again through Jesus Christ so that they might be partakers of the promises of Jesus Christ. If we're fuzzy on the election, God's election by grace, or perhaps we're wrestling with it, 
or perhaps don't embrace it. And if you're honestly wrestling with it, I, I, I celebrate that wrestling. I want to talk with you. We want to share with you. But if we remain fuzzy on this, then one of the things that can happen is we start writing people off. So the question is, whom have you written off? Who, in your mind, is beyond God's ability to save? Now, we used a very extreme example of an ISIS terrorist who cuts people's heads off. But, let's get into our world. Your boss? Your neighbor? That relative you see two or three times a year? Christmas or Thanksgiving or at a wedding or a birthday party? Let's get a little closer to home. Perhaps your siblings, your nephews, your nieces, your aunts, your uncles. Let's get even closer to home. Your parents. Your children. Have we subtly lost faith? Have we subtly not understood God's sovereignty and election, His plan of salvation, so that we have written some people off unconsciously? Because that's what the Gentiles had done. And Paul's answer to them in verse 11b is, by no means. No, no, Israel is not lost forever. Their fall is not final. No, by no means. Look at this with me, verse 11b. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Israel did not stumble that they might fall permanently by no means. They stumbled so that salvation might come to you, Gentiles. I just want to talk to you for a moment about God's grand plan of salvation. And if you're new, this is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, listen, pay attention carefully. At the beginning of time when God created man, man rebelled against God. And at that moment, God said, if you disobey me, you will die. And he died spiritually and eventually physically. But at that moment of this rebellion, God said, I'm going to send a savior. From the seed of the woman, I'm going to send a savior. And then the whole Bible is this story of redemption. Will God send a savior? Who is that savior? And today, of course, we would say it's Jesus Christ. But back to the beginning, God then chose a man named Abraham, a Hebrew. Not because he was the biggest, not because he was the best, not because he was the smartest. He wasn't. He was a pagan. And God said, through you, Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the nations. And so we read in the Old Testament, this exciting Old Testament, the story of Abraham and this people, the Hebrews and Israel. And will he guard these people? And will these people be faithful? Because from these people will come a Savior. Who is he? God delivers them from Egypt into the promised land, gives them commandments, but oh, these people, they're like us. In good Yiddish, oy vey. (laughs) And they blow it. And God preserves them, though he disciplines them. And the story of the Old Testament is exciting. It's chin-chilling. It's spine-tingling. Where's the Savior? Where is he? Where is the seed? And we see that the Savior is going to come from a harlot. She's in the bloodlines of Jesus Christ. From a king who commits adultery and murder, yes. God is preserving his seed, that perfect man, that savior, and he bursts upon the scene of history. So God uses 
the Hebrews, Israel, through whom, through, through which he will birth the Savior, so that the prophecy, the word, the promise to Abraham, I will bless you through all the nations, is accomplished. But then we see here the very ones he used, he then hardens. That's last week's sermon. And so how can this be? That's why the Gentiles are saying, wait, wait, salvation came from the Jews, but now none of the Jews believe the Savior who was birthed through them, the Messiah. What? And, and Paul told them last week, It's because it's part of God's sovereign plan of salvation. His electing grace. Just look with me for a second. Romans 10.19, remember what it said? Romans 10.19, Moses himself says this. Romans 10.19. First Moses says, I will make you, speaking to Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah goes on to say in Romans um, 10.20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. That's the Gentiles. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And then Isaiah prophesies over 500 years before this actually happened, this situation that Paul is answering in this letter to the Romans, the situation of Israel rejecting their Savior. God said, this is part of my plan I'm going to have Isaiah write this. Look what Isaiah writes in Romans 10, 21. But of Isaiah, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Salvation will come from Israel. Israel will reject, I'm hardening them. Not all of them, but a majority. And because of that then, I am going to have salvation go to the Gentiles. That's what he's saying right here. Back to Romans 11, 11b. Has their fall caused them to stumble forever? No. It's through their fall that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so Luke tells us that's exactly what happened. Look on the screen. Luke's account of how the gospel went forth is exactly this. Paul first goes to the Jews. The Jews inevitably reject the gospel. Then he goes to the Gentiles and God saves many Gentiles. It's part of God's plan. Acts 17, 1 to 5. Now, when they had passed through Amphipas and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul went in, as was his custom, as was his custom, as was his custom, the gospel to the Jew first. And on three Sabbath days, remember he's in a synagogue, so three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is Christ, Messiah. There's the gospel. Dear unbeliever here amongst us. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now look at verse 5. Remember what Paul says in, in 11, in Romans 11b, God is going to use the salvation of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd and kill them. That sounds pretty terroristic to me, especially if I were Jason. Acts 19, verses 8 to 10. Again, we see this pattern. 
And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three days spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He's on his missionary journeys through the Mediterranean. He goes into the synagogue. He's trying to persuade them about the kingdom of God, about Jesus Christ being their Messiah. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, just as God said they would 500 and some years earlier, Speaking evil of the way, that's the gospel, that's the the church, Christianity, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, a Gentile. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is exactly what Paul is referring to in verse 12, back to Romans 11. He says, Israel's trespass meant riches for the world. For the Gentiles. Do you see that in verse 12? If it meant that, then how much more will their inclusion mean? Obviously, he's assuming they're going to be included again. If their rejection meant riches, which we just read it did, all of Asia heard the word of God, what will their inclusion mean? And then again in verse 15. If Israel's rejection, that's the term Paul uses there in 11.15. Take a look at it. If Israel's rejection meant reconciliation of the world, reconciliation of the world, not primarily with one another, but with God, These were pagan Gentiles under God's wrath. So the Jews rejected it. Now the Gentiles are going to be reconciled, those whom God has elected. If the rejection of the Jews meant that, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the exclusion of the Jews brought great blessings, how much will their inclusion bring? If their rejection brought blessing, how much more will their acceptance bring? In fact, some commentators that I read said that this resurrection from the dead is referring to the end day, what's called the eschaton, the final day, that day when everything will be renewed. Corey alluded to it in his prayer. No more beheadings, no more terrorists, no more tears. That day we're all looking for, where this body will be glorified. It will not age any longer. And we will live in this glorified body, the new heavens and the new earth, with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with his glory. So the clear assumption is that God will include Israel at some point in the future. He will include them again in his people and his promises through Jesus Christ. And when he does, the blessings for us all will be enormous. Israel didn't stumble so as to fall in a final way. So he's trying to answer this question. He comes to verse 16, and he's saying to these Gentiles, let me explain to you God's plan of salvation. Let me explain to you the grand scheme of this story of salvation. And to do that, he uses two metaphors, two word pictures. The first one is of a lump of dough, and the second one is of an olive tree. And they both, though particularly the olive tree, represents Israel, particularly in the Old Testament. Israel is represented as an olive tree. And what he's trying to introduce in these metaphors is this idea of God's electing grace, God's sovereign plan of redemption. And if you'll notice there in verse 16, he says that if the root is holy, do you see that with me? And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The root here most probably means actually Abraham, the patriarchs. Actually, more specifically, the root means the promises God gave to Abraham. Because this covenant, this one covenant 
this one plan of salvation was revealed to Abraham, and you all the nations will be blessed. Now, it was a little hidden. It wasn't fully formed. Of course, when Jesus comes, it's fully formed. And when Paul writes Galatians, he refers back to Abraham. He says, that's what God was talking about. God actually preached the gospel back then. He actually says that in that promise. That's the root. That's the root. And he says to the Gentiles in verse 17, listen, sure, you're going to say that if some of the branches, look at it with me, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off from this root, from the promises of God, unbelieving Israel, and you were, were grafted in, although you're a wild olive shoot, if that's true, and it is, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Because verse 18, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So the root is God's promises, ultimately, to the patriarchs. Some of the unbelieving Israel were broken off. You were grafted in. As a matter of fact, there's a picture of a grafting in of an olive branch. I'm from the city, so I can't, that makes neither heads nor tails to me. But I read carefully about that. That is an olive tree, and these branches are grafted in. They're wild olive branches, unfruitful olive branches. Olive branches that are not connected to the root, to the promises of God. It's what Ephesians says of us. It's what Ephesians says of us. That we were this people that were not a people. Put up that next passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, speaking to Gentiles, says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, those would be the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Those root promises. And strangers, here's the key, to the covenants of promise to Abraham, having no hope and without God in the world. That's basically us, folks. But now, praise God, but now, think about that wild olive branch that bore no fruit, that had no hope, now being grafted into the root from which it will be nourished, the root of God's promises. It's God's promises. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We sang about that blood. Next slide. Four, through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in in one spirit to the Father. That's the thing that the Jews couldn't accept, even though it was prophesied. Gentiles are included too? No, no, no. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The next slide built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Next one. God is including us. God is blessing us because of his sovereign plan of election. 
It is all by grace, dear friends, both Jew and Gentile. We're chosen by God's electing grace. And when we forget this, we become arrogant, as the Gentiles were becoming, and we start writing people off, and we start thinking we're better than they are. And at this point, God calls us to remember and to humble ourselves so that we might be grateful to be included in God's people and God's promises. Grateful that we're included in God's people and God's promises. We deserve to be cut down as wild, uncultivated olive branches and burned. That's what we deserve. But rather, we are grafted into the nourishing root, God's very promises to his people, to the patriarchs. It's really, it's Christ. By the grace of God. And so we need to be careful that we don't, like these Gentiles to whom Paul was writing, go from being grateful to be included to being proud that we are included. It's funny. It's almost like the Gentiles had turned the tables. Oh, you Jews used to be God's chosen people. But now that we've read a couple of prophecies, now that we're Old Testament, you know, experts because we read like three passages and we're studying Hebrew, you know. uh, No, no, now that God's turned the tables, you guys are excluded. God's rejected you. Oh, no, he's done with you. You are off the stage of redemption. It's us now. And Paul's saying, no, let me remind you of God's electing grace. See, that was Paul's remedy, to remind them of God's electing grace. That's why they were included. And that's why Israel, the majority, were temporarily excluded from God's people and promises. It was part of God's plan, his electing plan. So don't be arrogant toward others, but rather, and here's the main point of the message. Considering God's electing grace, declare the gospel with humble zeal, and hopeful, hopeful faith. Considering God's electing grace, declare the gospel with humble zeal and hopeful faith. Point one, consider God's electing grace. Look at verse 22. That word note that we translate in the English could also be translated consider. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. God's electing grace. Some get justice. Some get mercy. None get injustice. Consider God's electing grace. And as we consider it, let it cause us to be humble. Let it it bring us to our knees. That's where he says in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be proud, but rather fear. Look to God and and reverence God and say, oh Lord, thank you. Rather than being arrogant toward others, reverence God. It shouldn't make us superior and arrogant, but it should make us humble and grateful. We should be grateful that we were included. Grateful that we were included. Look at Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into one holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. We should be humble about that. We have nothing to be proud about. It's all of God's grace. Earlier in Ephesians 2, it says that salvation is by grace alone so that none of us can boast. Point two, having considered God's electing grace, declare the gospel with humble zeal 
and hopeful faith. See, the fruit of noting God's electing grace is to go and make disciples with the gospel in humble zeal and hopeful faith. When I understand God's electing grace, when I understand the plan of God for salvation, it should not produce in me just to kick back and say, well, you know what? God's going to save whomever he's going to save, and God's going to, you know, give justice to whomever he's going to give justice, what they deserve. And so I'm just going to sit back. No, no, no. That's not what Paul did. Paul is zealous for his people. In fact, Paul is so zealous that he says in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He understood that he didn't save anybody, but he's so zealous. This doctrine of God's providence, of God's sovereignty and salvation, of his electing grace, caused Paul to work even harder to magnify his ministry. It wasn't to get his name in lights. It was to say, let's work harder. Let's let's preach the gospel. Because I understand that God says that as the Jews brought us the Savior through God's grace, now we are being saved because they rejected. But God's will is that as we're being saved, he's going to make our salvation cause them to be jealous and bring them back. So I'm going to Share the gospel as much as I can to as many people as I can because I have a heart for my people. That should be our heart. That should be our heart. We should have that same zeal as we consider God's electing grace and that electing grace should also produce in us hopeful faith. Rather than cause me to be passive in evangelism in declaring the gospel, it should cause me to be the most zealous. Why? Because of all people I realize... I can't save anybody. It doesn't depend on how, uh, on how persuasive I am or how many tricks I have up my sleeve to manipulate somebody to believe the gospel. It doesn't work that way. What, what, what the Bible teaches me is that God has his elect, those whom he has determined from the foundations of the world, to show mercy. And God says that they cannot believe unless I preach. We studied that in Romans 10. So therefore, I'm going to preach with joy in my heart. I'm not all uptight. I'm not all crazy. Thinking, gee, I wonder. I'm just going to preach believing God that this is someone that he's going to save. And I'm going to do it with joy. I'm going to do it with hope. I'm going to do it realizing it's not my words. It's God's word and God's spirit. So of all people, I should be the most hopefully faithful when I share the gospel. And faith is a big part of what Paul is sharing here and what he's reminding the Gentiles of. See, what he's reminding them of is this. If he didn't spare the natural branch because of their unbelief, and if he grafted you in because of faith, and that faith was a gift from God, then be careful. Because if he broke off the natural branches because of their unbelief, he'll do the same to you. So fear God. Reverence God. Is this teaching that one can lose one's salvation? No, it's not. No, it's not. But the Bible holds both of these doctrines in strong truth. Salvation is by God's grace alone, but it's only those who remain in faith that are saved. So there's a warning here to all of us. If you are God's elect, you will remain in faith till the end of your life. But it's only those that maintain faith by God's grace who are saved. That's what he's saying here. God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off at the end of verse 22. So we're to, we're to reverence God. We're to share the gospel. We're to say we're here by faith alone and faith in God 
Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not based on our actions, but on what he has done. And so rather than be proud, these Gentiles and we should walk in humble reverence. Humble reverence, as it says in verse 20b. We should declare the gospel with our lips and from lives lived in humble, reverent faith and gratitude to God for including us in his people and his promises by faith. And cry out to God and thank God every day for his grace. God alone is sovereign in salvation. So don't tell him when a person or a people are done, when they have stumbled so as to fall permanently. That's what Paul is saying to the Gentiles. No, that is God's call, not ours. Our call is to share the gospel with humble zeal and hopeful faith, using our lips and our lives, grateful that we have been included in God's people and promises in Jesus Christ and inviting others to join us. Verses 23 and 24. It is clear. God has the power to graft them in again. Verse 23. He alone has that power. By his electing grace, through the faith he gives to those who hear the gospel and believe those whom he gives new life in Jesus Christ. We declare the gospel with humble zeal. We declare the gospel with hopeful faith through our lips, through our lives, as a community together. And we're hopeful because God's electing grace, because God's plan of salvation before the foundation of the world, because God is sovereign in election, believing what the scripture says about the gospel. The foundational passage, the thematic passage for this whole book is in Romans 1, 16 to 18. Paul writing, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. We live by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's exactly what Paul says in 11, 23 and 22. You are the righteous, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. And the righteous live by faith. And you are part of this root, this holy root, because of faith that God gave you. And those who are saved will remain in faith and will live by faith. But don't you tell God to whom God can give faith. That's his call. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So share the word of God. Let our lips be loosed. Let our lives be true to this word. Let us repent quickly when we sin. Let us be humble. Let's have humble zeal and hopeful faith, church. That is God's call, that we would be grateful to be included this morning. Now I want to transition to a time of ministry. And and here's, here's what I would like to ask. In a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. There may be some of you here this morning that are saying this. I want to be included. It's all starting to make sense to me. And I would just ask you this. Please consider coming down to talk to someone. Some of our leaders are going to be here, community group leaders. I've asked a a couple from our outreach team to be here. So just pray with you. Come on down. Talk to us about it. Talk to the person you came with. God is the one who will open your eyes. But oftentimes, you need explanation. There's going to be another group of you. And this is my question to you. Are you humbly zealous to declare the gospel with your lips and your lives and to do so in hopeful faith? And if you say to me, Al, I am to a degree, but I want to be to a greater degree. 
I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to be more in faith. I want to see God's electing grace, his plan of salvation. And I want it to motivate me not to be proud and feel like I'm better or lazy or just think, well, if he's going to save me, he's going to save him. But I want, I want that humble zeal that Paul has here. I want that hopeful faith that I see in scripture. Then I invite you to come down for prayer as well. This is a time of ministry. It's a time of encouragement. It's a time to express our gratitude to God. That's why we sing. So let me encourage you to enjoy it. We're not in a hurry. We've we've heard God's word. Let's respond now, shall we? Let's pray. Worship team, please join me. Lord, I pray that you would give us all, Lord, just clearer vision. We'd put on the gospel glasses and the images that have been a little fuzzy would come into sharp relief. We'd see that we are included in your people and promises based upon your work, Jesus, not anything that we have done. We don't deserve it. We don't have a right to it. You choose to be merciful to whomever you will. And Lord, we thank you that you've been merciful to us. And we agree with what your word says. That we would be grateful to be included. And we ask that this doctrine of your electing grace would produce in us a humble zeal as we consider it. And a hopeful faith. And as Christians, you would loosen our lips. Give us a vision for lives lived together to declare that gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.